We are in the middle of uh, 2 Thessalonians. This is an action-packed book. It's three chapters long. It is the second installment of, uh, after Paul had given the, the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, the ushers are going around right now. If you need a Bible to stick your hand up, they'll be sure to get one for you. Uh, you can keep that as a gift uh, from us, or if not, just leave it in your seat, and we'll make sure to get back to where it needs to be. Um, but as we're going into 2 Thessalonians, we, we need to understand this, this wonderful book. And, and what's amazing about this book, is we've talked about this before, is Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica. It's a young church. It's a racially diverse church. It's a port city church made up of, of converted Jews as well as converted uh, Greeks, Gentiles, um, um, people that were uh, pagans, if you will and have been brought into this, uh, the kingdom of God, and Paul's instructing them on how to live. And many of them had a lot of confusing understandings of theology, and Paul writes to, to anchor them, to show them the truth of who God is. And, and one of the things that they were confused about was the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, and now it's interesting, as I think about the second coming of Jesus Christ, and I think about this, this uh, passage specifically, it, it made me think of just what... Uh, truth is, because this is an inconvenient truth. This is a truth that we're talking about that no one wants to hear about. And, and, and that people are great in hearing about the second coming of Jesus. What people don't like hearing about is judgment. Uh, we are a culture that is allergic to truth today. And, and here's what I mean. Um, we have everybody going to heaven. Have you ever been to a funeral where they say the person is not in heaven? I've yet to see that. Every funeral I've ever gone to, their loved one is all in heaven. Every time I see someone pass away on Facebook, everybody's writing their condolences on walls, and they're saying, oh, you know, they're in glory. They're looking down on us. And, and, and the truth is, is that not everybody gets to heaven. The Bible is very, very clear about this, that the pathway uh, to destruction is broad, but narrow is the road that leads to eternal life, and few find it. And the reason that we want everybody else to get to heaven, because we want to get to heaven ourselves. So we're, if they get in, then we can get in too. But the reality is, is that the truth is that no one wants to hear is that there's, not everybody gets to heaven. Matter of fact, we will all be judged. We don't want to hear truth today. We want hope. And you know, right now is the political season, which I can't stand. I am so tired of hearing about politics. I really am. Because no one really wants to, I mean, people have this tendency to do these political grenades and they throw their one their their gunslinger up online with their their article that they want to prove their point and then someone else goes back and forth and it's and and really no one really knows what's being I mean what's going on I mean, at at the end of the day because politicians like to say what we want to hear they all do and the one, the politician that gives the most hope is usually one who gets elected. The problem is, is that when hope doesn't meet reality, disappointment and frustration ensues. And so politicians are great at making promises. Great at making promises. Where they have a hard time is, is delivering on those promises. Or they, make, they fulfill their promise, but they don't fulfill and promise in the way that we thought they would. Uh, for example, think about, for those that have been around a long time, I don't know if you remember the, uh, when, when George H.W. Bush was running for election, he uh, gave a speech, and his most famous part with his speech was, read my lips. Remember that? Read my lips. What did he say? No new taxes. And many people who were around remember that. And everybody celebrated. He's making a promise. Now, here's the thing. He actually fulfilled that promise. He didn't create any new taxes. He just raised the old ones. 
Now, the thing is, is that that makes you frustrated because it's still costing us money because the impression was is you're not going to increase and expect us to pay more. But there was, a, there was a truth that needed to be taught that he actually didn't show the full extent of it. And what I mean by that is this, is that there was a budget, that ha- a deficit that had to be taken care of. People don't want to hear, oh, we're going to have to cut, cut some budgetary things in order to make the budget. People want to hear, how is my job, my life, everything going to get better? The, the problem is, is we don't want to make the changes necessary in order to do that. And, and this can happen with any politician. This can happen with anybody who makes a promise. Because politicians make promises all the time, but rarely can they fulfill them in such a way that, that really shows hope and truth at the same time. And so today we see a truth that can be an inconvenient truth and a truth that no one wants to hear, that you're going to die, you and I are going to die, and each one of us is going to face judgment. And if we don't die and we, we're here until Jesus comes again, we're still going to have to face judgment. No one wants to hear that. Everyone wants to hear about love and how everybody goes to heaven and let's lock arms and sing kumbaya. Okay, But God is showing us within his word that He is coming, and Jesus is coming to inflict vengeance. Vengeance on those who do not know God. That is a a very big truth that no one wants to hear about. Why? Because we love our sin, and we're scared. We're terrified at the end of the day. Because we know that we can't get away from it. Today, we're going to look at what God says within His Word to show that really there are two destinations before us. There's heaven and there's hell. There is judgment that is coming. But he is showing us within his word that Jesus is going to return. We will all be judged and heaven and hell are the only two destinations put before us. We're going to look at these truths. Now we must realize that our hope is not in any politician or scholar. The only true hope that we have is in God and in him alone. He is the one who is our living hope. He speaks truth to us and doesn't try to deceive or trick us. He doesn't try to to say one thing while doing another. He's open and straightforward, and people don't like children. I mean, like it. And like children, excuse me. (laughs) You know, I'm up here almost an hour every week. I'm bound to say something stupid. But like children allergic to peanuts or gluten, we as a culture have entirely become allergic to truth. We have. We're allergic to the truth. We don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to feel like an outsider. We don't want to be labeled a a bigot. And so we don't speak truth anymore. We change things. We want to be more PC, so we don't call things what they are. We don't call it sin. We call it addictions. We call it struggles. We don't like saying that a person is going to heaven or hell. We don't like saying and using terms like the Scripture uses because we're, we're afraid of those. Those are seeming harsh. Let me tell you, when someone is struggling with, someone finds out that they have cancer, does, does the doctor go to them and go, you know, you're, you're afflicted with just a little sickness, but it's going to be okay? Or do they, start, they say, I'm sorry, you have cancer, and you're going to die if you don't do something about it. So they have to speak truth, and it's a truth that's painful, but it's a truth that's necessary in order to make changes so that we can change. So God is calling us. He's speaking and showing the word to us. He's speaking truth that we might make the changes necessary to live a life that is pleasing to him. It's a truth that no one wants to hear, but it's one that we must hear if we're to do and be, or be and do what God wants us to be and do. 
Before we go any further, let's ask for God to bless us, to speak to us in this message time. Father, speak to us by the power of your word that we might go forth changed. It's, it may be a truth that we, we don't want to hear, but may we, uh, with love and grace, lay ourselves on the altar of your of your grace and of your mercy. And we ask you to perform a spiritual surgery on us with the scalpel of your word that you might cut forth and cut away the cancer of unbelief and sin that is keeping us from seeing and who you are. Lord, help us to be healthy followers who are in love with you. But speak this truth to our hearts that we might go forth and love you and enjoy you more and more each and every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start off looking at verse 5. Paul writes, and he says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. He hearkens back. He's talking back to verse 4. And in verse 4, we covered last week, he says in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith. See, the church had been persecuted, and they had remained steadfast. Even though they didn't have a lot of training, even though they're, they're, they didn't have a lot of great organizational techniques, they didn't have any amazing, mature leaders. These were people that came to belief in Christ, uh, and, and had their leader, Paul, had been taken away from there rather quick. But despite that, despite all of the things they'd gone through, their love for one another was increasing. And Paul was boasting about them for their steadfastness and faith in your persecutions, in all your persecutions, and in the afflictions that you were doing. And he says here, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. See, Paul wanted the Thessalonians to understand that the growing of their, their growth of their faith in the face of adversity actually proved that God's righteous judgment was coming. Now, for us, we need to understand the same thing, that God's righteous judgment actually can be understood in our suffering for our faith. And our suffering. That's the first point that I want you to write down. See, we have a tendency to think that if we're suffering, then we're not doing God's will. And that's what the Thessalonians thought too. They, they thought, if I'm suffering, I must be doing something wrong. See, when we suffer, when we ever experience pain, we want to stop what that pain is to find the root of it because we know that when we're in pain, something's wrong. Something is wrong with us, and we need to find out the root of that pain so it can be removed from us. And, and that's what we think when we're suffering. And, and they're thinking that we're suffering because God's not with us. And Paul's saying it's actually the opposite is true. Our suffering for the kingdom of God proves that God is right and that God's righteous judgment is coming. So our suffering actually proves that. Now, Paul explains this in different passages, and I want to share these passages with you. We have several passages we're going to look at today. The first one is in Acts chapter 14, verse 21 through 23. Now, Paul is speaking uh, here, and Luke, who wrote this passage uh, by the Spirit, he says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. These are some of the earliest churches. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. So they're there to teach, to preach, to grow uh, the churches that are there, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And then they said this, They wanted them to understand that it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Because here's what happens. When you're living the life that God wants you to, when you're testifying to Jesus about Jesus to other people, which we're supposed to be doing, some people are going to receive that truth and others are going to reject it. And they're going to come against us. It's inevitable. So we just need to get over this notion that people aren't going to be offended. The gospel is offensive by its very nature because it says that we are all sinners and we will be judged. And people don't like that. 
We have to remember that. When the gospel comes into a person's life, other people are going to be offended because it's disrupting the status quo and what we love and what we hold dear. Namely, our sins, because we love our sins. We have to face that truth. We love the sin that we do. And God is saying, no, that is wrong. That which you love is actually an enemy. It's, it's, it's against God. So he's telling us that. We can also see this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. As for you, this is Paul speaking to the, uh, young Timothy, uh, the, the, the pastor. Always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of the evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. You are going to suffer as a Christian. That's not what people want to hear. That's a truth that no one wants to hear. But let me tell you this. This is what we are called to do. This is what we are called to do. It's like with a, with a cup of tea. You put a tea bag in, and the flavor of the tea bag doesn't come out until what it hits it. Hot water. Hot water is what brings out the flavor of a tea. See, it's, it's through persecution, it's through tribulation that the, the aroma of Christ, that the power of Christ is exemplified and comes out of our lives. It's not in our comforts. It's not in those, those pleasures and things that we in, have. Often it's in the suffering. Now, it's not to say that we're not going to, to have, that we have to suffer all the time. That's not the point. That we will, though, experience suffering. And he says this again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 through 23. And this is Peter writing, and he said, For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? He's talking for those who are uh, bond servants, and they are, he's saying that they need to obey their masters. But he says, But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. If Jesus suffered, we're going to suffer because we're called by his name. Jesus even says that. He goes, if the world has rejected you, understand that it rejected me first. He goes on, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If we are testifying about Jesus Christ, if we are calling people to repentance, we will suffer in some way. The gospel challenges each one of us to believe and offers choices to us if we believe or do not believe. And whenever someone encounters the truth of who Jesus is, they will respond positively or negatively. There are no neutral parties. And if we are consistently living and testifying about who Jesus is, then we will eventually suffer for our faith. It's not going to be easy, nor is it going to be fair. But be aware that you will suffer. We all will, in some way, shape, or form. And Paul wanted us to know that our suffering actually shows God's righteous judgment. Now, how? How does it do that? Well, first of all, it reveals the reality of our faith. Reality of our faith. That's letter A in your notes. See, when others see the extent of what you are willing to go through on behalf of Christ, it shows that God is real. It's in the early church, the Romans came against Christians because they, they believed that it was a threat. It, um, there was another kingdom, another king, and it was disrupting the status quo within the kingdom of Rome because the kingdom of um, the excuse me, the empire of Rome believed that you could have whatever faith that you wanted. You just couldn't say that yours was the only way. But Christianity came along 
and was different. I mean, it was, it was a sect, considered a sect of Judaism, but it was permeating all of Roman society, and it was really bothering the Romans. Matter of fact, Caesar even lamented. He said, even the slaves are thinking. When the gospel came alongside, it was changing hearts and minds. And so the Romans came up with a way in order to kind of weed Christianity out, if you will. They would bring their altars into the neighborhoods of, uh, of, of Jerusalem or wherever the churches had, had been uh, were growing. And they'd say that you had to make an offering to Caesar and say that Caesar is Lord and put a little incense on the altar. That's it. That's all you had to do. Walk up, Caesar's Lord, boom, all good. And see, if you didn't do that, you'd be killed instantaneously. So imagine that. All you have to do is that one little thing. Could you, would you do it? Because that's not, it doesn't seem that hard. And they would even say, come on, it's not that bad. Think of your family. Think of your children. Think of all the things. that You don't want them to grow up without a dad or a mom, do you? Come on, just, just a little bit. It's not that big a deal. Just go ahead. See, many of these Christians would say, no, I can't do it. I can't. I can't do it. It makes it and they would be killed for it. And, you, and, and people would stop and go, what would possess a person to die for this? And it, what, would it, what would it? What would make a person be willing to endure that kind of hostility? And see, God is magnified through our suffering. God is magnified when we are willing to suffer on, our, on, on His behalf. It shows the reality of our faith. And it's God's righteous judgment. It's not judgment that is arbitrary or subjective, dependent upon lawyers and perfect juries, lack of evidence or technicalities. It is one that is completely objective. And the Thessalonians needed to understand that they needed not to respond to their persecutors. God would pay them back soon enough. God will repay those who have harmed us. See, we have this tendency, especially as Americans, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. You do this to me, I'm going to get you back. You, you, you know, you hit me, I, I, I hurt you. And we want to respond. And here it's saying, no, don't do that. And trust the judgment of God. Look at verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. It's the ultimate payback, and it will be completely just. There will be vengeance because the persecutors were not just harming people, but God's people. As Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 16, he says, The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me, referring to God the Father. God will pay them back. We see this in also Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. And for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. See, it's one key of the gospel that we often overlook is God's vengeance. Vengeance is God's, not ours. Do you realize that? It's God's. We want to take vengeance. We want to take matters into our own hands. And God's saying, no, 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 don't do that. Don't respond in that way. The world responds in that way. You'll want to respond in that way. You'll want to seek justice for yourself. But you have to entrust yourself to God and let God act on your behalf, as we see in Romans chapter 12. It says, Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. You're going to frustrate him. 
Because he's wanting you to respond with evil, but you're responding to evil with good. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, any wrong that has been done to us because of our faith, we need to leave to God to repay. It is up to him. In fact, we see even after death, those martyred for the faith are waiting upon God's judgment, as we read in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And as Jesus himself said in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12 through 13, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha is the first letter. It's letter A in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the Z. It's the last letter of the alphabet. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. God will judge, but that's not all. He will also give relief. He will give relief. Look at verse 7 with me. And to grant relief to those, to relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, God will grant relief. See, there's something about fear and what it does to us. It amplifies our senses. We can only endure so much mentally and emotionally. And it has been shown that soldiers can only endure combat for so long before it takes a toll upon them. See, the soldier, when they're in the middle of a combat zone, has a, they have to be alert at all times because they never know what's going to happen. But there's only so long that a soldier can do that before it takes toll. And as we live our lives before God, as we're enduring suffering for the kingdom of God, we look for the time when we're not on alert all the time, but we can be and have relief. And God will ultimately give relief. He knows all the sacrifices that we've made, all of the temptations that we've resisted, all that we've given up, all of the discipline that we've done in order to live lives of righteousness, and all of the acts done on His behalf that seemed hard will be vindicated and will be given relief. It will be a wonderful thing. But when will that occur? Let's look at verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. See, it will occur at His coming. His coming. In fact, that is another sign, perhaps the greatest and most inescapable sign of His righteous judgment that's coming. See, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, He will be revealed. The word in Greek word that's used there for revealed is apocalypsis, which means revealing or uncovering. Jesus will be revealed, uncovered with all of His glory, with all of His angels. There will be the the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and every eye will see Him. It will be an amazing moment. It will be one that He shows that He is victorious. See, His coming shows that He is the one who is triumphant. I don't know if we've really grasped that, what it means when He comes again. We get a picture of this, as John says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. Or in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but those who, to all who have loved his appearing. It will be the ultimate vindication. It would be the ultimate indication. I don't know about you, but I get really frustrated 
when I see all of the garbage that is thrown up in our world today. All the stuff that I see on TV, the confusion over what, who can use a bathroom. I, I can't believe that we live in a world where this is going on. Uh, that people are, we're saying that a, a, a man who thinks he's a woman can use a bathroom uh, or walk into a, a, a locker room of women. Just there was a man in Seattle who actually went in and he was wearing normal clothes, but he said, identify as a woman. And he came into a woman's locker room and they couldn't remove him. So this is how messed up our world has become. Or I see the people just being touted on social media like the Kardashians or, or Kylie Jenner, or these people taking these awful photos and just, just putting out, I mean, public displays of nudity and all immorality and celebrating it. And I look for the day when God will righteously show his power in our lives. Because I look at that and I think, Lord, why? Why are these people being celebrated and all across our culture? Why do people want to be like them? I mean, this is perverse. And yet, it's something we look at and we laugh at. It's become something that we, we, we seem to enjoy and we don't even bat an eyelash any longer. But God is showing, no, 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 no. I'm gonna, every sin will be judged. And see, what, God, what, what is celebrated with man is not what God values. We have to go back and we have to see what does God value. We have to reorient ourselves as we go and, and put all of our world and sift it through the Word of God and let the Word of God show us truth, even though every man be proven a liar. And we have to understand, He's going to come back. And, and for those who have waited for Him, those who have sacrificed for Him, those who have testified about Him, those who love Him, those who have ordered their lives in such a way that He would receive glory, it's going to be your vindication day. It's going to be a triumphant time. It's going to be an excitement. It's going to be greater than any victorious parade. And that includes, by the way, if the Cubs ever win the World Series, that's going to be one amazing party. And I'll tell you, the whole United States will be celebrating that. But let me tell you something. That is, that is nothing compared to that day. To that day when he will come back, it will be the ultimate vindication. It will be his triumphant day when he enters in and people are going to fall down and people are going to shout and people are going to be completely amazed and overjoyed. But at the same time, it's going to be terrifying, especially for those who do not know Jesus. It is going to be absolutely terrifying. Notice verses 8 through 10. He'll come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony was to believe, He's going to come in flaming fire. Now, fire indicates a few things within scriptures. It indicates his presence, as we see within the book of Exodus when Moses came before the burning bush. It also shows his, his power, as we see within uh, the life of Elijah when he was battling the prophets of Baal and he made the sacrifice. And the God who answered by fire is God. It also indicates judgment, as we see within 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where all of our deeds are going to, in, in essence, pass through fire. We have to understand this metaphor that he's coming in flaming fire. I mean, it's purity. It's his presence. It's showing his power. It's showing all 
who he is, that nothing will escape him. We see this especially as I indicated in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 through 15. And Paul is writing and he says this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. And he's talking about laying the foundation of Jesus. And he's saying, though, that all the work that we do for God, it's somehow building a building for God. So every glorious work that we do, every sacrifice we make, in essence, it's building uh, a picture of who Jesus is in our lives. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We're building upon him. Now he says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, he's talking about the day that God comes, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So fire is a purifying element. It will reveal really how our lives were lived, what was really done for him. See, all the masks that we put on will be removed. We will be naked before God. And he will see us and, and, and identify everything for who we really are and what we've done truly for him. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 through 13 draws this out even further. He says, By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Do you know that, that this world's going to burn? It's going to burn up. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Time exists for God on a different level. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, of which we, by the way, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So don't think that holiness is an addition to your life. It is to be an integral part of our lives. And godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will, be, will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, which righteousness dwells. That's a pretty sobering thing there. See, it's going to say that it's a terrifying day for those who do not believe. Everything that we know will be changed, even this earth. All will be burned up. I mean, it, it's a purifying element when we're talking about fire that's there. And it's a fire that's inescapable. I think of the, the fires that we always see in the news that are in California. You see those wildfires that totally get out of hand and then people lose their homes and people are trying to escape from it and trying to contain it. This is a fire that can't be stopped. This is a fire that comes from God because our God is a consuming fire. And it will be inescapable for each one of us. We need to understand that. It'll be a terrifying day because God is coming to inflict vengeance. So we need to revisit this doctrine of the wrath of God. I mean, we don't think about the wrath of God much. We like to think about the love of God. We like to think of the hope that God gives. We like to talk about his mercy. We like to talk about his grace. We like to, we like to talk about many different things, but rarely do we talk about the very wrath of God. 
that God is wrathful. God is loving, but he's God is also wrathful, and the two are not contradictory. They are completely compatible, complementary with one another. But God's wrath is coming, and he's going to inflict vengeance upon every person who has rejected him. He's going, and as we saw within the text, he's going to repay every single individual for every single sin that they have done. Not one sin that you have done will be overlooked. I don't know about you, but that's pretty terrifying to me. I think of the sins that I've done in my past. But here's the thing. When you trust in Jesus, your sins are paid for past, present, and future. So great was his sacrifice for us. Because see, what happened was, is he took the wrath of God upon himself on the cross so that we, who are believers in him, we don't have to take that wrath of God upon ourselves. We don't go through that wrath because it was already borne out in Christ. It's for those who said, I don't want him to take that wrath. I don't believe in him. So you are left then to take that wrath upon yourself. And what an awful day it will be. I mean, it's not only going to be terrifying, but it will be total. Total. Look at verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. The word for punishment is a legal word that indicates the execution of a sentence. And here it is, eternal destruction. For the wages of sin is death. I mean, there's the first death that we experience, but then there's the second death. We will spend eternity away from God. See, some believe this to be annihilation when it says that we will be uh, eternally destroyed, that it will, it will actually end at, at, a time, at some time. But the word destruction is properly more like ruination with its full destructive results, not annihilation. It is the opposite of life, being eternally destroyed or undone. That's another word that the, the word can mean there, eternal destruction. It's eternally being undone. And it's, it's, it's an awful thing to, if you really think about it and draw that out, it is undoing in every sense of the word. Spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally, there is no relief. And the worst part of it all is that we are taken away from the source of life, beauty, joy, rest, peace, and pleasure itself, God himself. See, the, the whole story about the gospel is actually... I mean, God is the gospel. That's the story of it. That God is the source of life. He is the source of love. He is the source of hope, mercy, grace. He is the everything that we desire and hold dear. And even which the things that we enjoy of this world are in some way, they're all pointing back to him. And the pleasures of this world are simply the warm-up act for the pleasures that we will experience forevermore. When we will have eternal life in his presence, we will experience life, peace, wholeness. But see, eternal destruction is the complete opposite of all that life is. It is non-peace. It is eternally being undone. It is living entirely with the worst thing is regret to know what it is that you have lost. You know, it's one thing to realize and, and lose an opportunity in life. I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity where you've looked back and you go, man, I wish I could do that again. I've had so many people that have sat across from me in my office that, are, that live constantly with regret. I'm constantly telling my children, please listen to your father because I don't want you to live with regret because regret is one of the most awful things to live with. 
I've had so many people in my, in my office that are older that have said, if only I could go back and talk to myself and tell, them, and tell myself not to make that decision, not to, to do that thing. And here it's the regret in the most ultimate sense. But it's realizing what we have and who we really have rejected is the greatest being in the universe, the source of love, the source of hope, the source of life itself. It is eternal destruction away from his presence. There is something about being in the presence of someone. I, I think about seeing my wife and my children when I get back from a long trip. I long just to be in their, in their presence. Or when I'm away from my wife, I was giving her a hug last night. I was working all day yesterday, and I came home, and I wrapped my arms around her. She goes, man, I miss it when you're not here. I mean, I'm, I'm in town. I'm, I'm, not, I'm three, four minutes away, but it's something about being in her presence and her being in mine, and there's a delight and a warmth in that. And, and even when I'm, when I'm away from my children, I, be, I want them to be in my presence. I want them to be with me. I love my children most of the time. I love them. I love to be with them, and I want to be in their presence and to have them to be taken away from my presence. I mean, one of the hardest things that I, I, I've had to do, and it was a, a painful thing, I, uh, we had a, uh, when we first moved here, uh, we were told about a family who had also relocated. We'd been here for only about six months, and they had come from Massachusetts. They'd actually attended the church that I had pastored in New England, and they were going, uh, had just moved to DeKalb uh, to go to Northern Illinois University. And I'd only met the couple one time. They had just started to come to the church, and we were actually leaving it on our way out. But the guy who uh, had taken my place called me and says, hey, this family's going through a really big struggle right now. Um, the wife is pregnant, and uh, she is uh, about, it seems like she's about to lose the baby. They're putting her on bed rest. Matter of fact, they're airlifting her uh, to take her to this other hospital because they're afraid they're going to lose this baby. And they know no one there. They have a, a two-year-old son uh, named Elijah, and they need someone to come and watch this child to take them while they can, the husband can go to the hospital with his wife. So here we are. We show up at their apartment, and the, the, she's already been airlifted. He, the father is there. He's just meeting us again. I mean, he only met us one time. And now we're to take his two-year-old son for we don't know how many days. So we're just meeting this little boy. He's two years old. And this little boy, we have to take the dad away from his presence. So this little boy has to be taken away from his father. Now, you ever seen a two-year-old who's being taken away from a parent? The kid is screaming. He's arching his back. He doesn't want to go into this car seat with these strange people. He is an absolute terrified of what's going on. We're trying to console him. And I got tears in my eyes. I don't want to rip a child away from his parent. Because it's the one he loves. That's the one he trusts. That's the one who's, who's there for him. And yet I'm having to rip this child away. And I'm seeing this child cry out. I mean, think about that being taken away from the presence of our Heavenly Father. When we realize, really, and, and people then realize who he is and what they have rejected, and there is no second chance, there is no other opportunity, and it will be horrifying to be taken away from the source of life, the one who is the only one who could forgive us for our sins, and we see that we loved something that was so gross and disgusting, and we've rejected the greatest being in the entire universe for temporary pleasures that do not satisfy. We rejected the ultimate source of satisfaction. It will be absolutely terrifying. It will be total. God himself is the righteous judge. He's the only one who's completely righteous that he knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And that will be total. That's not all. 
See, God's righteous judgment can be seen in our suffering. It can be seen in His coming. But it can also be seen in our persevering. In our persevering. And when I say persevering, I mean living out our faith until the end. Either until we die or He comes to take us home. And not just in the pain that we endure, but in forsaking sin and living for righteousness. See, there are some here today who think that they are completely fine with God because they were born into a Christian home or they prayed a prayer at camp. But there's no evidence of the life of God in them. They have no fear of God, no evidence of righteousness, no thirst for holiness, and no desire to live for Him. And for that, I would say that you need to rethink your faith. I mean, Paul, he he prays for them that they might persevere. Look at verse 11. He says, to this end, we always pray for you. He's praying for the Thessalonians, that our God may make you worthy of His calling. Make you worthy. It's very interesting there. He wanted them to be deemed worthy of the calling God had placed upon their life. They had been bought with a price. Matter of fact, they had been bought with the most costliest price that heaven had to pay, and that was from with the Son of God, the blood of the Son of God. His very life was given for you. And we need to live lives not to pay God back, but it might be worthy of that price to show that God is holy, that God is our King, that God may make us worthy. Paul wanted us, wanted God to fulfill every resolve or good work of faith for his power. It's not for our power that, it's not our power that does it, but it's God's power working in us. As we read in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, Paul says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that, understand, you have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because you realize the mercy that God has shown upon you and what you've been saved from. But he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, we're reminded that God began a good work in us and will bring it to completion. But we're to work it out. See, Paul is praying that God will continue the work that he started. And it's through our persevering that God is showing that he is real. And that what he has said is true. Namely, that his judgment, he is the king of heaven. And that he is going to come to judge the, the, the quick and the dead. It's shown in how we work out our salvation But know that as we do it is a sign of God's evidence that God is the one working in us. Now look at verse 12 as we're getting near the end. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, did you know that God began this work in us so that his name might receive glory? See, we need to remember that the sole reason we exist is to bring his name great glory. God wanted the name of Jesus to be glorified, to be made famous and beautified in your life. Now, here's my question. Is it? Is God's, is God's name being glorified in your life? Are you bringing God's name glory when you look at sin or you're looking at porn or you're engaging in, in all kinds of stuff on the Internet or you're watching certain TV programs or, or you're, not thinking, uh, you're not cultivating that relationship with your spouse, or you're not telling other people about him or you're cheating at your workplace or you're cutting corners, whatever it might be when you're gossiping, is God being glorified in that? Of course he's not. How do we make God beautiful? By living a life that shows that he is worth reordering and reorienting our life 
for him. See, we can testify that God, what God did through us. That's what we're to do, is to testify, to show by our lives that Jesus Christ is Lord. But how does that come about? It's, it's not through our own effort. It's through Jesus working in us, but we can also see in verse 12 that it is according to the grace of our Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, we can see that until he comes, we continue to live by God's grace. It all comes back to God's grace, God's safety net. There's something amazing about grace. God's unmerited favor to us. It is radically freeing, and once you truly begin to understand what it is, it's absolutely intoxicating. It frees us all from the burden of trying to earn God's favor, from living by law and a set of do's and don'ts. Instead, it it takes a hold of you and shows you that what you already have, God's favor through Christ, and life you live now is simply, simply an offering to Him, not to gain His favor, but to show gratitude for what He's done in you and through you. Christ makes promises that will be kept. He's not going to make promises like politicians who won't deliver that will ultimately be a disappointment. Instead, he makes promises that are completely open, that are completely honest. There's no deceit. There's no trickery. He has promised to give us life, but he's also promised that he will come back and judge, and that judgment will be righteous. Every sin will be judged. So until that day, we press on, living for Christ, sharing the truth of who he is, so that all may be saved. It's a truth that no one wants to hear, but we must, but must be told. And I hope this, this truth weighs upon us. Last night, as I was putting the finishing touches on this message, I walked out of the side door, and I just looked outside, and I think I, I was just overwhelmed with God's power that's in his, and knowing that his judgment is coming. And it made, me, it made me stop and rethink all my family members that don't know God. It made me think of some of you who are here each and every week, but your life does not show that you are a child of God. It made me really weep. I was overwhelmed at the presence of God this morning in my quiet time with him because I believe that God is doing a work among us that only he can do. But I believe it's also the truth of his word that is being shown to us that we might reorient our lives for him. We can't continue to play with sin, everyone. We have to do the work necessary because God is coming back. It could be before I finish this sentence. It could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be next month, it could be in a thousand years, we don't know. But he is coming back. And he's going to inflict judgment. And it will be a, it'll be a triumphant day for those who follow him. But for those who rejected him, for those who are living lives away from him, it will be absolutely terrifying. And I don't want to see my loved ones, I don't want to see anyone go through that. So hopefully that truth weighs upon each one of our hearts that we might reorient our lives, but it also might give us a passion for the kingdom of God to expand in the lives of our loved ones who are living lives away from him. May the truth of that weigh upon us. May we speak out of love and testify of his truth for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you draw us unto yourself. Lord, let the weight and the truth of this doctrine that no one wants to hear, let it be upon our hearts and let it help us to rebel against the world's status quo. Lord, we ask that you invade us Lord, that you show by your power that you are still working in the hearts and minds of so many people. But Lord, let that work begin in each one of us. Lord, the truth of your word, that you are coming again, may that weigh upon our own hearts. And Lord, it staggers our imagination. And many of us are fearful. And Lord, help us to know that we don't need to fear if we are completely trusting in you and giving our life unto you, lives unto you. So Lord, we come before you asking you to speak to us touch us, use us. And Lord, if there's something in our lives that is, that is completely 
against the word of God, may we make the changes necessary. May we be repentant. May we reorder our lives to show who you are. And Lord, give us, a, give us a desire, a hunger for you to make your name known. And Lord, give us the words to say to our loved ones, our coworkers, our friends, our neighbors, uh, our family members to testify about who you are, knowing that you are coming again and that you will judge every single person. May we speak the truth of God before it's too late that they might too come to saving knowledge of who you are. Give us boldness, uh, give us wisdom, and give us a spirit of love and compassion that they too may be saved. Glorify your name in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, just a quick